0: So I'm uh, Nicholas Bornodis of Capital Inc and I would like to welcome you all to another very interesting session. This one talks about the rebirth of closing funds coming to the market and the, uh, the outlook for the market looking ahead. We have with us a great uh, group of panelists and I would like uh, to thank uh, Clifford uh, Clifford Cohn who is moderating this panel for uh, for one more year. We have a great partnership. And we appreciate your uh, being part of the event every year, as well as I would like to thank all of you for being uh, repeat uh, participants uh, uh, to our event. And of course, we're doing a great job for the Cloth & Fund Market. So without any more uh, comments from me, I will turn it over to Cliff and thank you again.
1: Great, thank you so much. Um, I know I speak for everyone. We were all excited to put on uh, dress clothes today um, for the first time in six months for me. So. Uh, Happy to be here. Um, Let me very briefly introduce who's with us. um, Mark Charles, who's a director and member of the Equity Capital Markets Division at Wells Fargo, uh, with a particular focus on new issue closed-end funds. Patrick Galley, who's the CEO and CIO of River North. Uh, He's been in the industry for a long time um, and is also a a large institutional investor in in closed-end funds. Bill Myers, who's been with Naveen for 30 years and leads its closed-end fund development. Development Unit, Um, and and Finbar Ward, who is part of the traditional investment products team at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and has been involved in this space since 2016. Um, So, you know, these last few years have been really interesting for closed-end funds, and you know, there's been an evolution of sorts. And I think maybe beginning with Patrick and Bill, you know, as sponsors, just wanted to kind of open it up by asking what are kind of the most important trends you've seen in this space um, recently? Um, You know, I I have my own ideas about what those are. Uh, I won't color your thinking, um, but maybe if I could start with you, Bill, you know, just to get some color on what you think's been really critical to the development of these new products.
2: Uh, uh, Sure. Uh, Sure. uh, Thanks, Cliff. And uh, thanks uh, again, Nicholas, for putting together the panel. I always look forward to uh, the, this conference. It's a new and different world. So uh, thanks for coordinating it for everyone. Um, in, in terms of trends, uh, Cliff, I, I really see two uh, dominant trends that have happened. Uh, one is on the product side and the other is on the market side. Uh, with respect to the product side, there's a couple features of, uh, of uh, the, the new trend and the shift. One is the, uh, the imposition of terms. And we, uh, we saw terms uh, being introduced uh, many, many years ago. Uh, you know, Naveen had some term funds in the 90s. I know uh, both BlackRock and uh, an issuer called Capital had term funds. But now every fund that's coming out uh, has a term uh, attached to it. And we've seen the terms uh, shifting out from five to, uh, to 12 years, and, and maybe soon beyond that. Uh, but a term is a, a feature that's uh, seems to be, at least for the time being, a permanent uh, part of uh, closed-end uh, issuance. And again, that, that hasn't always been the case. Uh, closed-end funds were issued in the States, I think, back as late as the 1890s. Uh, there's an old closed-end fund, uh, Tri-Continental, that was issued in the, the 1920s that's still out there. Uh, Nuveen issued uh, its first fund in 1987, which uh, just had its 33rd birthday. But every fund issued now is likely to be terminated uh, prior to uh, any time like that. Uh, another major uh, structural change is, uh, is the fees. And uh, this, is, uh, this is really important because the fees uh, historically have always been embedded within the offering price. So uh, those fees, when I started at Naveen, were probably between 6 and 7%. And that came out of the proceeds of the fund. Uh, starting in 1999, those fees were down to four and a half percent. But again, that came out of the NAV of the fund. And uh, as a result, uh, funds immediately traded, uh, initially at least at a premium to the underlying NAV. Uh, those fees um, shrunk and, uh, and are now uh, no load, or those are paid entirely by the sponsor. Um, advisors are still earning fees, and banks are still earning fees, uh, but that's paid uh, by the sponsor out of pocket. So it's been a a big change for the sponsor, but it's also been pretty beneficial uh, for the advisor. I'd say one other big change in the market um, relates to the the advisor selling it. And we've seen uh, more and more advisors uh, wrapping their assets and uh, and, and selling or, or providing uh, asset under management and fee-based um, services. And that's been challenging for the, the closed-end issuance side, the IPO side, because those types of accounts are generally uh, not compatible with new issue offerings. So it's, we've, we've faced maybe a shrinking group of advisors uh, in selling into that market. But I think uh, at the same time, the lower fees have counteracted uh, some of the diminished uh, participation by introducing a lot more advisors, who otherwise wouldn't have played in closed end IPOs.
1: That, that's that's great perspective, Bill, and I and I think you know it shouldn't be understated that you know the the, the immediate dilution uh, to investors um, off of the NAV, uh, you know, really played a part in secondary market trading after the stabilization period. Um, uh, maybe I'll just hand it over to Patrick, get his thoughts as well, but but thank you for raising those points.
3: Yeah, no, no thanks, Clifford. Uh, yeah, I, I would echo Bill's comments. Obviously, I think those are the biggest in the last couple of years as far as structure goes for closed-end funds. Uh, fees being re- literally 100% paid now by the advisor. Obviously, the terms, uh, you know, we also had some target term trusts trying to return back $10 a share. Uh, now you're seeing more of a trend towards great term trusts and those those terms have extended from, we've seen three, five, seven, and now we're talking about 12 It's been a pretty consistent uh, term. I would just add also structurally on those term trusts, there's a feature um, that's still a benefit to a sponsor of a closed end fund and that in the, in the year before uh, the term were to expire, the board of directors has the option uh, to go out to shareholders for a tender offer. And it's a 100% tender offer for shareholders, so everybody can tender their shares. And if the, fund sponsor, if the fund's left with over typically over $100 million or thereabouts, uh, then the remaining portion can be perpetual thereafter. So I think that is a, a good structural feature for both the shareholders and then obviously the sponsor because it's working and it's trading well and it's had good performance because, you know, we do believe the close end fund wrapper is the best way to manage assets. Should you be forced to liquidate just because 12 years prior uh, in a prospectus, it was, it was deemed that it should be liquidated? You know, we think that is a good feature to have in there is tender offer in the year before, and then from there, if you don't have over 100 million or whatever the level is, then the fund will liquidate and everybody will get their money back uh, at net asset value. So we think that's a good feature as well. Um, on the fee front, yeah, I, I, you know, I, you know, here we've shifted over the last couple of years, you know, some of the fees had been paid, historically, as Bill pointed out, it was 100% paid by the investor, you know, we had funds coming out, you know, five, six, seven percent premiums to their net asset value. Well, we're, not only are we a sponsor of closed-end funds, but we're also traders of closed-end funds in the secondary market. And when we have a fund trading at a six percent premium to its net asset value, it immediately creates a supply demand imbalance in the marketplace. There's not too many people in the secondary market that want to pay $1. six for a dollar worth of assets. So naturally, the fund started to sell off and once they got below net asset value, it's been already a bad experience for the investor. And in the next thing you know, you've got tax loss selling season in front of us and it puts more pressure on the market price. So now that they're coming out at net asset value, our experience has been, You know, you get more advisors and even the fee-based advisors that Bill has been talking about saying, you know, I'd like to buy this in my other accounts. And I think that's one challenge for the industry is for those fee-based advisors to be able to buy closed-end funds at IPO. I don't think uh, uh, this is maybe a challenge for you, Clifford. Uh, You know, the attorneys have figured that out yet, but I think that is somewhere we need to look going forward. Uh, is how to have fee-based advisors to be able to buy close-in funds at IPO because they're coming out at net asset value. And I would just also add, um, you know, close-in funds coming out at IPO where 100% of the fees are being paid by the sponsor and the broker is being paid by the sponsor. That's actually, if you think about why we got into this position, it was because of the pressure on DOL. And here we are, you know, fee-based advisors, obviously they typically charge an asset-based fee, year in year out. Let's say, for the sake of argument, it's one percent. Well, if you buy a closed-end fund and you're in the secondary market and you're charging a one percent fee, you actually are better off to, to buy it in a brokerage account. Get your your commission paid from the sponsor. The client is better off in this case. So we think there's still, you know, the brokerage uh, of closed-end funds makes it makes a ton of sense.
1: Uh, and Patrick, you know, just given River North's. Uh, perspective as an institutional investor, um, you know, having seen the evolution of this product over, you know, a significant amount of time, um, how have the changes we've just discussed influenced your thinking about, um, you know, where you commit capital and how you think about secondary market trading in these products?
3: Yeah, that, so that, that that is an interesting perspective because, yes, we're a sponsor, but also an institutional investor in the closed-end fund space. So, you know, and I'll I'll speak off the cuff because you know the reality is a term trust that's expiring in 12 years is not necessarily making that much of a difference for us in the secondary market um, one year in right or two years in it's more closer to when those trusts are um, getting closer to expiration that becomes very interesting especially if we can pick up it pick it up at a discount to its net asset value so naturally as the uh the fund matures and it gets closer to the term we become more interested as do other investors which naturally puts pressure on the discount and narrows the discount and maybe even trades at a premium to its net asset value depending on the the class so you know we we like that there's a lot of terms out there we now have a diversification of classes and different funds in vintages uh that are maturing at different times which as institutional investor in the secondary market. It provides interesting ways to generate excess return by buying, buying expiring funds um, in, in, in due course. Um, regarding the fees, you know, that typically uh, doesn't make that much of a difference to us other than it's immediately at a discount if it trades off at all, right? Or again, if it, was, it had a sell off 5% before it was at a discount. And then it has a negative sentiment with investors. So here, if it's sold off 5%, it's at a 5% discount. Um, In a lot of cases, it's also, you know, the fund that's actually appreciating on a net asset value is the market price keeping up with it and it's trading at a discount. So you've eliminated that uh, uh, spread as well. So again, if the fund trades up from a net asset value perspective a little bit and the market price is flat, it's still at a discount. that become we're, we're interested. I would say quicker in the secondary market of closed-end funds as an investor uh, in the space.
2: Yeah, if if I could add a little bit, uh, Cliff, about uh, the, the terms and in uh, the pricing. Uh, back in two thousand fifteen, uh, the the IPO market was uh, was very very challenged and they had uh, traded uh, just very very poorly after a series of deals. And what we we realized is that. We, we thought the market needed a couple things. It needed uh, some ability to, to enable investors to get back and capture uh, the NAV at a certain period of time. Uh, obviously, the market would want it as soon as possible, like an ETF, for example, but as an issuer, you really can't do a, a two or a three year term. So we went out with our first product with the five-year term with the expectation or the the objective rather of returning the original NAV. So it gave uh, the secondary market a couple couple variables that they could fix on in uh, helping price uh, the shares in the secondary market. And I think that succeeded in improving pricing, Uh, but we also did that on a product that had lower expenses up front. Uh, and the expense of that fund uh, was a point and a half, which was a significant reduction from the four and a half points it was. But again, it, uh, it seek to, uh, to create an end point in terms of time, uh, but also uh, an expected end pricing point. So we thought it helped the secondary market. Uh, as we've talked about since then, uh, the fees have gone from a point and a half for those deals down to zero, as the sponsors had borne that, and the terms have gone out. So as uh, as the market has become more comfortable again with the closed end, uh, given the new pricing structure, it's uh, it's embraced longer terms, uh, which probably wouldn't have been possible in 2015. So we we think it's a positive development for investors. Uh, to have the, the lower fees, but also from an issuer perspective, it's helpful to have a longer term with, as uh, Patrick mentioned, the ability to, uh, to create a perpetual uh, after a tender.
1: Yeah, and I, and I guess the, the, you know, the, the liquidity rule imposed by the SEC for open-end funds um, you know, has really put a lot of pressure on how open-end funds are managed, even more than before, just in terms of you know, going through the liquidity Provide a daily redemption in those products. Uh, you know, I think in some ways that's made closed-end funds even more attractive. You know, to be fully invested, um, to really go after products that are generating yield in this environment. Um, you know, I, I guess what we haven't seen in a long, long time is is equity-focused uh, closed-end funds. I, I, you know, I'd be curious if if anyone sees those on the horizon. Uh,
2: I, I I can start, Patrick. Sure. I was... sure. I was Go waiting ahead. for you to to do it. Uh, we we've seen we've seen some equity based um, offerings. If uh, if you include uh, funds that have a covered call,
4: yeah, uh, yeah.
2: overwrite strategies. So uh, BlackRock has uh, has done uh, some of those with uh, with great success. And it's not a pure long only equity strategy necessarily because there's an option overwrite uh, used to right. generate cash flow. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but but what. What we don't see is necessarily a pure equity strategy um, off, the, off the bat without uh, having some cash flow and some option override. So, uh, so closed-end funds and their buyers, it's really dominated by the income investor and the investors seeking uh, cash flow. And, uh, and as long as I've been involved in closed-end funds for years and years, it's always been the case. Uh, you, you go into offices and uh, everyone asks, well, what's the dividend on it? And, uh, and I remember many years ago, um, we did an offering that, that I, you know, I'm, I'm partial, but I thought it was uh, the best, uh, most thoughtful strategy in the world. And it had a, a low uh, dividend uh, rate because it was, it was very focused on equities and it was a higher paying, um, dividend strategy, but we didn't use overwrite and we combined it with some debt. Um, concurrent in the market, which which was another change where you had multiple deals in a given month. Concurrent in the market was a much more narrow, concentrated portfolio that, um, that frankly, I don't think it was as thoughtful a strategy, but it had a, a, a much higher distribution rate. And that fund did very, very well in the market. So it's it's tough to do an equity-only strategy, um, but it's it's not for lack of trying. I think uh, I think the option overwrite is a way to uh, provide exposure to equities and still offer investors uh, cash flow while doing it.
3: Yeah, I would I would just add, you know, I think we have seen some more politically pure play equity funds market in the last couple of years. Um, you know, just recently, you know, science and technology, helped artificial intelligence Uh, and also you know what's interesting about those funds is they typically have a part of the fund is investing in privates private companies so pre IPO uh, companies and so this is a way to give you know retail investors financial advisors access to those uh, that type of asset class um, you know without going direct they're getting it in a pool vehicle um, and by obviously professionals managing the fund and then the option overwrite, I think that is, you know, part of a, a structural feature for the fund or strategy that is able to generate the, the additional yield if they want to implement that strategy. Some of them are implementing it, some of them are not. Um, and I think probably that is another trend worth mentioning that, you know, before it was all about meeting the yield, you know, meeting what, what's the yield talk coming out. And I think now, especially with some of these equity strategies, it's more about what's the distribution rate and those funds coming out with a level or a managed distribution policy that is set based off of what they expect to be able to earn on a reasonable basis through uh, net investment income and also realized and unrealized capital gains. And also being comfortable with, I think the market's more comfortable with uh, part of that distribution policy uh, potentially being a return of capital and knowing that investors are going to get their own money back at net asset value is actually not a bad thing. And it actually, and this is our opinion, it's a, a cyclical where that money then can get reinvested and buy that same fund at a discount. So it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy where that fund trades better relative to other funds without higher distribution rates, even if it is a return of capital. So I think that's also um, a, a recent trend that we've seen in the market that uh you know, underwriters, and we've obviously have two of them here, uh, and, the, and the advisors are more comfortable with coming out right at IPO with a distribution policy rather than needing to earn that net investment income. Because I also think historically that's created an environment where it's also a lot of risk, right? Okay, I need to invest in the riskiest assets. I have to put on a lot of leverage and, you know, that, uh, that didn't work with, you know, a certain asset class. That we saw in in, in March and April this past year, where there was a lot of force unbinding um, for because they had too much leverage to maybe meet certain distribution rates.
1: Yeah, the consistency of, of the managed distribution has appeared to be an important component of these vehicles. So, I don't want to ignore our our other two esteemed colleagues here. Um, Finbar and, and Mark uh, you, you know from your perspective as underwriters you know gatekeepers to, to what we're really bringing to market in this space um, you know we're, we're, we're far away I think from the world where we were bringing you know three four or five products a month um, how are you guys thinking about um, you know what you need to see what you want to see in the products that are being brought to, to market now what are the real important considerations from your perspective? Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Mark.
4: Sure. Um, and uh, Cliff, thank you. Good to see all of you guys, and uh, thanks to Nick and uh, Capital Link. Um, <clears throat> look, we what, the first thing that we look for in terms of an opportunity is is the strategy uh, Strategy differentiate. Is it something that's not in existence in the Build and fund space currently? Um, or if it is in existence, how many funds are in that space, and, you know, are there at Uh, Is there a trading at premiums? I think those are some of the things that we look for initially in terms of the opportunity. Then next, we would talk to our research team, We try to find out from them, WFA, particularly in terms of the sector, in terms of it being fixed income equity, is this something that would resonate with retail? Is this something that we can garner good potential interest in terms of the opportunity. Um, And then the third thing I think in in terms of uh, what we look at is the secondary close end fund market. Um, And I guess some people would look at that prior to whether it's differentiated or uh, go to uh, research, but in terms of the secondary market, if there's significant, if there's a significant number of funds that are trading at, discounts then it becomes more difficult to bring uh, that particular strategy Uh, but again if it's at if there's a premium existing uh, in that space i think we look more favorably at that and again gauging where our research is on the opportunity um, that gives us a sense well can we sell this and not just can we sell it but are we going to get pretty broad steps in terms of uh, in terms of the opportunity that we're trying to bring. And the fourth thing I would mention, we can't, we Wells Fargo, we can't move forward on a transaction without the support of another lead. Um, So obviously most of the transactions that we've participated in, obviously all of them actually, uh, we partnered up with the likes of Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, uh, more frequently UBS. and. And that was helpful, I think, in being able to bring not just larger managers like uh, Nuveen or BlackRock, but also smaller managers, uh, potentially like uh, like River North, uh, uh, Angel Oak, some other smaller managers that I think have come to market with differentiated product, but might have been limited in terms of their access uh, if we weren't able to kind of pull together our efforts in a a case of BBS and Wells Fargo uh, to work with them uh, and bring them uh, to market. So those are things that I think we look at in terms of the overall picture, the market, um, uh, whether or not research is uh, favorably disposed to us moving forward. Uh, And then of course, again, the the relationships that we're, we're hoping to foster with our syndicate partners in order to bring new issuers to market.
0: So so Cliff, I don't know if you want me to weigh in here, but I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. When Mark talks about differentiated and unique proposals and or strategies. We're always looking for those, right? Because they're what keeps advisors interested and that you know, they're the types of strategies that really um, draw in more interests or more users into this space. And in that context, I think a lot of it has to do with timing. So the proposal or the strategy has to be the right one for the current market environment. And to Mark's point, I mean, at Morgan Stanley, it absolutely has to be supported by by firm research and not just firm research, but research across the street. The second thing that we would look at is uh, the manager. So is the manager or the sponsor the right one for that strategy? Do they have a track record, not just in precedent closing funds, but maybe in other products that also have daily liquidity. And then finally, Mark touched on this, is distribution. Are they able to sell this product in our system or can they partner with a reputable third party? And it's not just about selling product; It's also about educating our advisors on the strategy as well as the wrapper. And in addition to that, we also look to do business with managers that provide support in the secondary market. So in times, in recent times, such as um, the COVID-induced volatility cycle from February up until April, we received an awful lot of calls from advisors looking for opinions, specifically from managers in relation to how funds were performing during that cycle. So secondary support is paramount in our decision-making
1: process. Yeah, and, and and I guess, you know, you raise a couple interesting points, both of you, um, about your considerations. Thinking a little bit about managers who may not, you know, be uh, the River Norths or, or, or Naveen's or Black Rocks of the world, uh, managers who don't have a lot of product out there but are really thinking long and hard about entering this space. How do you kind of view or do you view the considerations being any different you know, for a first time manager that perhaps has a very good track record, but just not in a, you know, publicly traded closed-end fund? And and how do you think about those types of opportunities? So, so maybe
4: I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about unique sponsors, um, uh, and, and I guess individuals or firms rather that are now trying to get access to, um, to the closed-end fund space, the question is, um, how much do they understand retail? Um, and I think Finbar uh, obviously uh, alluded to this. What is uh, what is what is their what are their thoughts in terms of distribution, and how are they going to be able to distribute that product? So, uh, so look, as I mentioned, we at Wells Fargo we are open to. Different managers, small and large, of course. Um, you know, uh, getting back to my initial point, differentiation is key. If they are coming with a product that's not out there, um, if it's differentiated, if we feel confident that research uh, uh, would be um, uh, comfortable with the opportunity, uh, those are things that um, uh, that we look at in terms of uh, moving forward. And again, in terms of researches, uh, like, uh, uh, their comfort in terms of the opportunity. Um, one of the big concerns for us is limitations in terms of stipulations. And if it's a transaction that's limited based on um, the steps that are gonna come from retail, then that may limit us, What, irrespective of if it's a larger Distribution opportunity or smaller um, firm. So, uh, those are some of the um, some of the other kind of the issues that uh, that I would focus on. Again, distribution is key. The innovative nature of the opportunity. If if we step back over two years, um, what we thought at the time when River North and Mackay Shields were coming to market with uh, a a fund that was gonna be invested in investment grade munis plus, um, you know, the, com- the closed end fund component to that, whereby Rivernorth Mackay partnered uh, on that fund at a real opportune time. It-, it clearly was, I think, an opportunity. And we've subsequently seen uh, a number of funds come into market similarly structured, um, at least from, from the Rivernorth team. While it was also mentioned here, we talked about um, uh, equities in terms of what uh, BlackRock and Allianz brought to market, Uh, we're focused on uh, the addition, the sizzle, so to speak, of adding privates to those opportunities. Uh, That's been somewhat of a differentiator because here it is that these are opportunities that retail isn't necessarily going to get access to. So here's an opportunity they're going to get access to um, and not have to worry about uh, you know how necessarily how it, um, uh, it trades uh, out of the gate. And we've seen great performance in terms of BlackRock, we've seen great performance in terms of the Allianz transaction. Um, uh, so, so some of those differentiations I think are key. I think that's what we're going to continue to look for going forward. Uh, and as, as Finbar stated, look, it depends on the general mood of the market. It depends on uh, the underlying investment, um, uh, the asset class, so to speak, uh, it, whether or not we're going to be able to um, put together a syndicate that's going to be able to be successful uh, in the market. So all those things, I think, um, are, are going to be key in terms of um, us making it to market with a new fund,
1: and and, and I guess just you know the, the tension between making this an expensive product for a sponsor to launch, you know, in terms of picking up expenses that would have you know in the past gone to investors, um, you know, we've got a no dilution product essentially, um, and this is kind of a question that I see on our screen. Um, what has the aftermarket performance looked like in this in these new iteration of funds? You know, ha- have we seen trading closer to NAV, maybe far less dilution than we would see historically in a, in a perpetual vehicle. You now, what, what have been your observations around how these new structures have really performed in the aftermarket? And then opening it to
0: Yeah, I can start here, Bill. I mean, um, you know, in general, funds that have terms attached to them tend to trade or tend to trend more towards NAV than, than perpetual funds. I mean, what we went through with the COVID-induced pandemic market volatility is obviously a very, very unique situation, Cliff, and probably, um, you know, volatility like that comes into the market, I think, once every eight to 10 years. But, um, you know, the closed-end funds definitely experienced an awful lot of volatility In those months, a lot of managers were very proactive about setting up calls and talking to advisors. But when you look at them now compared to where they were three years, sorry, three months ago, I think that they're definitely trading at a much better, in a much better place today. And I think that they make a more compelling case for the term structure than ever.
2: Yeah, if I could, uh, if I could add to that, and um, and I'm speaking from an issuer. I also speak from uh, maybe a, a, on one hand, maybe a slightly different perspective from where Patrick sits for part of his position. Uh, but I look at closed-end funds as is uh, a really important longer-term part of an investor's portfolio. So, so think about an investor who has an overall allocation. Uh, across equities, across debt, um, different types of fixed income. And think about maybe including uh, within those predetermined allocations, just a sleeve of closed end funds. So so carving off a slice of that and apportioning it to closed end funds. Uh, What those investors will will get is uh, a better income and cash flow approach Uh, but without a material pickup in risk. So we we think the risk return profile uh, for holding closed-end funds over a longer period of time is really beneficial for the cash flow of the portfolio. Now, uh, there are trading opportunities, and I think Patrick uh, can speak uh, to those because uh, certainly uh, we saw the market. Uh, get hit significantly in in march and uh, and and sadly I think for for patrick they they were the misfortune of being in the market uh, for an offering at the time uh, that the market had that volatility and i uh, as i as I saw that, I thought, you know if not for the grace of God, go I and um, we 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 pick a product that we think has integrity that makes a lot of sense but you don't get to pick the market you're in and what happens, but they, they got it off. But again, I, I look at closed end funds as being a more longer dated holding for investors who can deal with maybe increased volatility over shorter periods of time. Uh, we think they'll be rewarded with uh, with decent performance over the long run.
1: And, and maybe Patrick, before you jump in, um, just being mindful of some of the questions we've received uh, and Bill just kind of I think touched on this, but thinking about closed end funds versus say, you know, an ETF or a traditional mutual fund. Um, why, why, why is this market and why are these products, you know, compelling?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think March is a prime example, right? I mean, we saw, yeah, discounts and closed end funds got to extreme levels because of forced selling, but we, we, as an investor and an issuer, we view that as really a mark to market aberration, right? That's a temporary supply demand imbalance. It's not permanent loss. And unfortunately, a lot of open-end funds and ETFs during that period of time, I mean, they, they were just faced with forced redemptions, forced selling, hit market lows, um, which created a lot of permanent loss. And, you know, I think you really got to see some asset classes that uh, probably are in the wrong wrapper and probably should be off in a, in a closed-end fund wrapper. And, you know, if it wasn't for the Fed you know, coming in and, and, and bailing out and risk assets rallying back it would be interesting to see where we would be today with a lot of those risk assets, because, you know, I, I think they got, you know, that market or those wrappers got really bailed out, you know, Fed even came in and said, Hey, we're even willing to buy ETFs in the secondary market. Uh, you know, but closing funds that the wrapper, I think makes a ton of sense. And going back to your earlier question, you know, has, as the, you know, getting rid of that uh, upfront cost coming out at net asset value. You know, I think they, they are trading better. You're, you're, the definition of trading better is in the IW holder. Is it at a discount premium or is it from a total return standpoint? And what's interesting is a lot of the funds, again, that have had phenomenal net asset value performance might be trading at a discount, um, but they still have a phenomenal total return uh, uh, um, experience for the investor. And vice versa, uh, the funds that maybe the net asset value did hit in March and April, uh, and they sold off, well, the market prices didn't necessarily in, in some asset classes and some of the more recent funds, uh, not necessarily sold off to any extreme level where they're trading at big discounts. And in fact, they're trading near uh, um, net asset value. And I know Bill and his firm's got, you know, they, they had a, a fund that had you know, experienced a lot of volatility, but they, it's trading really well from a discount premium standpoint. We, we, as Bill was alluded to, we launched the fund at a perfect time where our net asset value skyrocketed because we had a fresh portfolio of cash to deploy in April. It's trading at a discount, but the net asset value has experienced a phenomenal run. Um, so I think, you know, that's uh, it's, it's interesting in how that market price and net asset value reacts, but at the end of the day, I think because we got rid of that upfront cost, you now, uh, you don't necessarily have the terrible experience, at least, you know, that first 5%, which have the negative sentiment right out of the gate. I don't think these funds have a ton of negative sentiment surrounding them. And that's why, you know, even despite all the volatility, the current IPO market is still relatively strong and the calendar looking forward is, is, is quite strong, despite, you know, the uncertainty.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I guess time flies when we're having fun. Um, I, I kind of wish this panel was uh, longer, um, but I think we're at our allotted time here. Um, and I want to thank everyone on the panel for um, so graciously joining us today and giving us our thoughts on this market. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this market, um, you know, has has experienced somewhat of a renaissance lately. And um, you know, I think there will always be competing products out there, ETFs. We've gotten some questions about ETFs. Um, I have a whole view on that, which we don't have time for, so I'll leave you in suspense until next year. Um, But I wanted to thank everyone for joining us, and uh, I hope uh, this was an instructive panel for those of you who are listening. Thank you.
2: Thanks, everybody. Thank you.